Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We have a lot of um, scripture verses to look at tonight, and so for, for the sake of helping you, I've put most of them on your sheet, but we will be looking some things up. But tonight, let's just kind of do a review of where we've been. We're talking about foundations of the faith, and we started out by talking about the scriptures, how the Bible is our authority for everything that we believe. Then we talked about the Trinity, about how God is one in essence, but three in person, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Last week, we talked about some attributes of God, how God is unchanging and how God is sovereign and how God is jealous. And then we looked at Buddhism, I think, last week. Then we looked at um, New Age. Tonight, we're going to look at Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. And, but we're going to really talk about the deity and humanity of Christ, okay? So who is the person of Christ as a man? and as God. And so we will start with um, the virgin birth. So here's our starting definition. Jesus is fully God, yet he was born into this world as a man, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary. Therefore, Jesus is both fully God, fully man. That is the, the key terminology there. Fully God, and fully man. Now, what happens if you take the word fully out? What's another word for fully? Partway, halfway, okay. If you take fully out, then some people would say, well, Jesus is halfway God and he's halfway man, or he's half God, half man. No, he's fully God, fully man. And we're going to see what the Bible teaches about that tonight. So let's just talk about the virgin birth. In Matthew 1, 20 through 21, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the virgin birth because I think it's something that we all accept. Um, but let me just give you a statement from Wayne Grudem in a systematic theology because I think it's an interesting statement about the virgin birth. Okay, so here's what he says. Um, quote, It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being and then send him down to earth without the benefit of human parents. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus was fully human because he would be part of the human race, but he would not have been physically descended from, from Adam. On the other hand, it probably would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents, both a father and a mother, and with his full divine nature somehow miraculously united to his human nature at some later point in his life. But it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God since his origin was in every way like ours. So Jesus could have had two normal parents, but then he wouldn't have been God. Or he could have come down, beamed down, and came upon earth, but then he wouldn't have been, like, born the way we are. So the virgin birth kind of brings those two together. And so the, the word that we use for Jesus coming in the flesh is the incarnation. Um, that's just a fancy name for in the flesh. Carne is the Latin term for flesh in the flesh. And so there was a point in time where Jesus came in the flesh, and that was at his birth. 
And so we see in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I'm going to give you guys a word that maybe you've never heard of before, but it's a theological word, but it's called the hypostatic union. What in the world is hypostatic union? It's just a fancy way. It's a theological term of saying this. It's the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one person. It's another way of saying that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man in the same person. Okay, it's not like he has two people or two, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the theological truth of his human and divine natures in one person. So let's talk about Jesus having a human body. Okay, this may be elementary, but I thought it would be fun to go through the scriptures and just talk about, because there's some heresies out there that deny Jesus had a human body. So let's talk about Jesus having a human body. He physically grew. Luke 2, 40-41, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Jesus literally, from a baby, grew. Went through puberty, became an adult. He grew. He physically grew. We also know that Jesus slept. Mark four thirty eight. He was in the stern of the boat asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him teacher do you not care that we're perishing so the wind and the waves are out there crashing into the boat and what's jesus doing he's sleeping okay he got tired jesus got tired in john 4 6 jacob's well was there so jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour that was when he was meeting the woman at the well he got tired from his journey And Jesus also got thirsty on the cross. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I'm thirsty. So Jesus had human characteristics. How many of you guys are thirsty? Hungry, tired, have to sleep, grow. Okay? Jesus experienced all those things. He also had a human mind. How do we know that? As a child, he learned things. Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Did Jesus, the Bible doesn't tell us, but let's just guess, did Jesus, when he was born, know how to write? Or did he have to learn? Did he have to learn the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet? Now, he probably did better than most kids, but he still had to grow. It says he grew and increased in wisdom. So he, his mind developed as he was getting older. And one thing we know about Jesus, that when he was 12 years old, what was he doing? He was in the temple teaching, and they marveled just as a 12-year-old. So he had an accelerated mind, um, even though it was still a human mind. Okay? He also had a human soul with human emotions. Um, he was troubled in soul. In John 12, 27, before the crucifixion, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. My soul is troubled. He felt the same type of emotions we have. Um, He was amazed and perplexed at people sometimes, or impressed with people at times. When the um, centurion had faith in Matthew 8, 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such 
faith. He experienced extreme personal sorrow. Matthew 26, 38, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. That's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then you guys know at Lazarus' death, he cried at the death of his friend. In John eleven thirty three through 35 when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, when I was a kid, that's the verse you always wanted to memorize because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But, but <clears throat> that word weep there really means it was like this outpouring of sobbing. It wasn't like he just kind of you know, shed a few tears. It was, it was a deep, sorrowful crying so jesus got tired jesus slept jesus ate jesus wept jesus had emotions Um, jesus was fully human in every sense of what it means to be human except for one thing he never sinned okay so jesus was fully man in every sense of what it means to be a man he was born he grew up he slept he ate, he got tired, he experienced emotions, he learned. But what made him different than any other person that's ever lived is that he never once sinned. So let's talk about the sinlessness of Christ because there are some scriptures that teach that Jesus never sinned. And probably the most famous one is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, And the high priest they're talking about there is Jesus. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus has experienced the temptations we've experienced, but he never gave in to those temptations. He never sinned. So he knows how to help us in those because he's gone through those himself. Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And that's speaking again of Jesus. What would happen? We'll talk about this just in just a minute, but we can just throw it out there right now. What would happen if Jesus had ever sinned? Would he be able to be a sacrifice for us on the cross? Because then he'd be dying for sins that he committed. So he had to be perfect. First okay. Peter 2, 22-23, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He committed no sin. Pretty, pretty plain and simple there. And then in 1 John 3, 5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sins. So Jesus was fully human, yet without sin. Which brings up a question. Why was Jesus' humanity necessary? Why didn't God just send an angel to save us? Why didn't God just save us without sending Jesus? Why isn't it bulls and goats and calves and sheep like in the Old Testament? Why? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's kind of hard to relate to a, to a calf. And it's kind of hard to relate to an angel. Okay? 
Here's the first reason why it was necessary. He was our representative who obeyed perfectly where Adam failed to obey. Who was the first human? Adam. And Adam, being the first human, is the representative of the entire human race. So Adam, I'm going to have trouble here with these. Ah, here we go. Adam, he is the representative of the entire human race. So what Adam did in the garden when he sinned, it impacted all of us, did it not? Now, what was the test or what was the, the, the condition that God told Adam back in Genesis chapter 2? You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat of it, because in the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, and what do we know Adam did? He ate. He failed the test. Okay, he didn't pass. He failed, and when he failed the test, as our representative, his sin became our sin. And what did he pass on to us? He passed on death, and he passed on guilt. So that every single person that's born in this world is born inheriting death and guilt from Adam. Now you say, well, Pastor Sean, where do you get that in the Bible? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 5, and I want to show you how that happened. Because what Paul does in Romans chapter 5 is he's going to make a comparison between Jesus and Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, if you will. Adam was the first man in a representative. Jesus, as the second man, came to do what Adam never could do, and that is to live righteously and obey perfectly and be the man that Adam never could be. So let's actually start back up in verse 12. So Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who's the one man Paul's talking about there? And what came into the world as a result? Sin. And what did that sin do? It brought death. And that death spread to who? All men. Now, that means physical death because all of us are going to physically die, but it also means spiritual death. So every single person that's born inherits both spiritual and physical death. Physical and spiritual death. And not only that, we inherit Adam's guilt, which means what happens if you're guilty? You are liable to punishment or condemnation. So let's go further down and look at verse 17. For... If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, so who's the one man he's talking about? Adam. What was Adam's trespass? Eating, eating the fruit, sinning. And death reigned. And then who's the second man? Jesus. And through Jesus we receive the free gift of salvation, we receive grace, we receive righteousness. But look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Okay, so what does it say there? One man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. Meaning what? Adam's sin led all of us to be 
condemned. And then one man's disobedience made us sinners. But notice in verse 19, what does it say? By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Who's that one man's obedience he's talking about there? Jesus. And so what did Jesus do to obey? When Jesus came in the flesh, he obeyed the Father perfectly in thought, word, and deed his entire life. And we see that, first of all, at his baptism. What did God say at the baptism? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay? And then when he went after the baptism, where did he go? He went into the wilderness for how many days? Forty days. And the devil came and tempted him. And Jesus passed the test in the wilderness. And throughout his entire life, he obeyed where Adam failed to obey. And as such, because he was a man doing this, he came to fulfill what Adam did in failing us from the very beginning. So we can, put, we can say it like this. Adam's disobedience, his failure to pass the test, led us to being born sinners. But yet, by Christ's obedience, we were made righteous. Jesus earned for us what we could never earn ourselves, namely perfect obedience to God's law. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. So by coming as a man and living perfectly, he was our representative to undo what Adam did for us. Okay? But in addition to that, to be our substitute for sin. What does a substitute mean? Okay, something that takes the punishment for you or takes your place. Can an animal be an accurate substitute for a person? Can an angel? It has to be, a substitute has to be a person, right? Because people sinned, but it has to be a perfect person. So therefore it has to be a God man. And who's Jesus? He's fully God and fully man. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to have you turn into a couple of chapter passages tonight, um, and then the rest of the stuff will be on the screen. But I, I don't want to have everything on the screen and make it easy for you. Some, some of you, sometimes we've got to actually turn in our, I mean, on Sunday morning, obviously, you're in your, we're in our Bibles all morning um, during the sermon pretty much. But here, since it's more of a topical study, we're going all over the Scripture. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. This is the writer of Hebrews' argument about why Jesus came in the flesh to die on the cross. So Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what is that saying? Jesus partook of flesh and blood, to die in our place to destroy the work of the devil. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, that is people, humans, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers. Meaning what? He had to come in the flesh in order to be a merciful and faithful representative to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And by the way, what does propitiation mean? You hope I was going to ask that? 
does propitiation mean? Some of you that have been down here a long time, been down this road. Okay. Propitiation. It means to propitiate. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It does. It means to propitiate. Propitiation means this. It has to do with, propitiation has to do with um, the wrath or the justice of God. So, let's just say this. God, wrath is not necessarily an attribute of God. Justice is. Justice is an attribute of God. Wrath is how He executes that justice. So, God's justice is that He is holy, He is righteous, and by nature of Him being holy and righteous, what does He have to do to sin? He has to punish it, okay? So he has to execute justice against sin. And that justice that he executes against sin is called his wrath. Is that an out-of-control type anger? Is it where God had a bad hair day and he's throwing lightning bolts? No. Sometimes we're, we need to be careful when we use the word wrath because our culture may think that God's this out-of-control God that just can't help himself and he's, he's really out of control. No, wrath just means that God is so just and so holy and so righteous that he has to punish sin. And the way that he does that is that this is a righteous anger against sin. Now, when Jesus died on the cross... He propitiated God's wrath, which means that He took that punishment of the justice that we deserved upon Himself as our substitute so that we wouldn't have to experience that wrath. Does that make sense? So propitiation basically means to die as a substitute, bearing or taking the wrath or justice of God that we deserve to take. Now, can any man do that? No. Can any angel do that? Can any animal do that? It has to be Jesus, fully God, fully man, being our substitute. He had to be made. He had to come in human flesh because we as humans are the ones that have sinned, so he's got to represent humans. But in order to propitiate God's wrath, he has to be God because no human can take God's wrath and, 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 and experience that and pay it, and absorb it, and to suffer it the way Jesus did, okay? And that's why Paul says, number three here, he's the one mediator between God and man. Um, he, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So let me ask you another question. What's a mediator? It's a go-between. So a mediator is a little different than a substitute. A substitute means that Jesus died in our place. But now since he's died and risen again, as the risen Christ, he's the one go-between that actually connects us to God. Okay. It's, Jesus says it another way in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's one mediator. There's not many mediators. What does the Roman Catholic Church believe about mediators? Who's the mediator? The priest. 
The priest is the human mediator that has to somehow grant you grace through the Mass and through the, um, the, the different confession type things, sacraments or whatever, in order to get you access to God. But what does the Bible say? There's one mediator. And who is the mediator? The man. The man. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. He's still man. Also, Jesus had to be human, not only to die in our place, to be the one mediator, to suffer God's wrath, to be our substitute, to be our representative, but also to be a pattern, an example, a human example of how we're to live. He is the ultimate of what humanity is. So if you want to look at the perfect human being and what humanity is supposed to be, we look at Jesus. And so 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. You might follow in the steps of Christ, live like Christ did, imitate Christ. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in Him, Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Now, this is something that maybe you haven't thought of, but it's biblical. Jesus will be a man forever. Jesus did not give up his human nature after his death and resurrection, for he appeared to his disciples as a man after the resurrection, even with the nail scars in his hands and feet. Jesus, after his resurrection, ate food in a physical yet resurrected body after His resurrection. Luke 24, 39-43, this is after the resurrection. Ron, yes? I have a question. Though. It says nail-scarred hands. We know they were there. But what about the demons? Is that why He opened the demons? Does it ever say not? Just maybe it's that important. All we know is, well, we know that, we know that Jesus has touched my side. Yeah. So there's the piercing on the side. Now I don't know. Jesus never says touch the crown, you know, touch the crown of thorns. So there's some. Yeah, it, it could have been in his resurrected body, um, which is kind of a prototype of what our body is going to look like. That may have healed. The, I don't know if the Bible answers it. The only thing the Bible says is that he's touched my. Yeah, to prove that he was truly, truly resurrected. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah, the, the, yeah. There could have been some healing, yeah. Yeah, we don't know exactly how badly he got beaten. We know that he had a cat of nine tails on his back, and they said they pulled his beard and spat on his face and punched him in the face and put the crown of thorns. I mean, a lot of physical brutality. Um, And so, you know, the one thing that we do know is that they recognized him when he showed back up to them. And so he wasn't so disfigured that they didn't know who he was. Doesn't it also say that by the time uh, he was placed on the cross, he was almost unrecognizable as a human? Well, Isaiah, Isaiah 53 says he had no stately form or majesty that we would be drawn to him. Um, and so however you take that passage in Isaiah 53, it just says that he was, yeah, disfigured. But, but to the extent... 
We don't know. All we have to go by, guys, is what Mel Gibson put in The Passion of the Christ, which has kind of become a, a I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry, it's kind of become a prototype for your view of this, when really that's one guy's interpretation. Um, it's interesting that the Bible speaks more about the physical, more about the spiritual sufferings of Christ than the physical, which should tell us that, yes, his physical suffering was very, very important, but the spiritual suffering. So let's look at this passage in Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet. So he's telling him, he doesn't say look at my face or my, just see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. I think that's just interesting. Here Jesus is showing up to them, and they're like, it's you. Hey, guys, you have something to eat? <laughs> you have some fish? You have some fish sticks? I don't know. What we got? So, you know, it's just, I think Jesus did that to say, listen, I am a resurrected man. And Jesus will come back to earth as the same man that he was when he left the earth. Acts 1.11 says this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So at the second coming of Jesus, he's going to literally physically and bodily come back. And we also know that in Acts chapter 9, after his ascension, he appeared in physical form as a man to Paul. He didn't appear as a ghost. He didn't appear as an apparition. He literally appeared as a man. Acts 9, 3 through 5. Now as he went on his way, this is Saul, who later became Paul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So we need to think about it this way. Jesus didn't just temporarily become a man. And then somehow his divine nature was, was, was you know, that like the, the, the humanity part of Jesus was temporary. He is the eternal God-man to this day in heaven as a man, resurrected, seated literally at the right hand of the Father. And when he comes back at his second coming, he will physically and literally come back as the God-man. And in the new heavens and the new earth, he will reign forever in a body as the resurrected Christ. So it's hard to put our minds around the fact that here's the thing that the best way I've had it explained to me. When Jesus came in the flesh, nothing was subtracted from him, but something was added. He just added humanity to his divinity. He didn't lose his deity. He was divine from the very big, like from eternity to eternity past. Since Jesus was not a created being, he's always been divine. He just added humanity to his divinity and kept that. Does that make sense? Okay. So now that's the humanity of Christ. He's fully human in every respect that a human is, yet without sin. And because of that, he's qualified to be the one mediator, our representative, our substitute, and that he will be a man forever as the resurrected Christ who ascended into heaven. He's going to come back as, you know, literally, physically, bodily, you know, 
how, how can he be riding a white horse if he's not a man? I don't know. So let's talk about the deity of Christ. Okay? So let's turn to John chapter 1, and let's talk about... And when I say deity, what I mean there is just his God, godness, his divinity, his deity, his, his, him being God. So remember our definition, fully God, fully man. Not half God, not half man, not fully man, half God, or half man, fully God. It's fully God, fully man. So John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and who's the Word there? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or literally in the Greek, God was the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So right there, John says, Jesus has always existed as God. Yet he's a distinct person from the Father in that he's the Son. Go back to the Trinity there. One God, three persons. So Jesus, the Son, is not the same person as the Father, but they both share the same attribute of being God. Okay? So Jesus is fully divine. Hebrews 1.3 tells us, that Jesus, He is the radiance, the outflowing, the shining forth of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who's the only person that can have the exact imprint of God's nature? Jesus. Now, we're made in the image of God, but does it ever say that humans have the exact imprint? The word faith, prosperity people believe that we're little gods, that we are actually little gods. That's a heresy. The only person who actually had the exact imprint of the nature of God is Jesus. And because of that, what can he do? He can uphold the universe by the word of his power. Anybody here can uphold the universe just by their words? Anybody here make purification for sin? Anybody here can sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high and not be killed in God's presence? So only Jesus can be that as the radiance or the outflowing, the exact imprint of God. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he made some, very, um, some claims that were outrageous. And, and um, you know, C.S. Lewis has said, you know, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. Because only a lunatic would make the things that Jesus claimed to make, unless he truly was God in the flesh. And so one of those statements he made was to the Pharisees, he really torqued them off. Jesus claimed to be the great I am even before Abraham. Who was Abraham? Father Abraham. And we spent a lot of time in Genesis. He was the father of the nation of Israel. He was, next to Moses, one of the most important people in the Old Testament. Everybody traced their lineage back to Abraham. And how long ago did Abraham live before Jesus came? About 1,500 years probably. Okay, so Jesus is going to make a statement here to the Pharisees. John 8, 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Hold that, hold that, Jesus. Do you see how he says it? Not I was, I am. Who's the only one that can say I am? 
when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus 3, and God said to Moses, hey, go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to set my people free. And Moses says, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? And God says, I am that I am. So Jesus here is basically saying two things. Number one, that same I am that was at the burning bush, that's me. And before Abraham was, I've been in existence. He almost got killed for that. That's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. How can Jesus say, I was born before Abraham when he's only, you know, he's only 30 years old, 32 years old, and I am. So that really got the Pharisees mad for him to claim that. But we also know Jesus was divine because he had authority over nature. Nature had to obey him. Matthew 8, 26 through 27 when they're in the boat, remember when he was asleep in the boat and the winds and the waves are crashing? And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even wind and sea obey him? I don't care what prophet you have or what gurus out there. Is there anybody out there that can actually make nature obey on command without some lights and mirrors? Even if you're David Copperfield, you make the Statue of Liberty disappear, supposedly. Jesus is the only one that can actually say to the winds and waves, hush, be still, and they have to obey him. And not only that, but he had sovereign authority over the molecular structure of natural elements when he changed water into wine in John 2. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs, Jesus said, at Canaan Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so he can control nature. He can control molecular structures. He said, before Abraham was, I am. But also he could read people's minds. In Mark chapter 2, when um, they bring the paralytic in through the ceiling, you remember that? His friends drop him down and, and Jesus says, you know, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, this guy has no authority to forgive sins. And in Mark 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in him spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, whoops, whoa, I went too far back. Why? Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. What was the Pharisees' argument? The only person that can forgive sins is God alone. And what does Jesus basically say? I have that authority to do that. Thus, I am God. Now, Here's a question that many people may have. Did Jesus 
give up some of his divine attributes while on earth. And there's a liberal view out there that they take from Philippians. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's called the canonic, the canonic theory. From the Greek word kenosis, you don't need to know that. But Philippians 2, a very famous passage of Scripture. I'm going to read the Scripture, and then I'm going to have you guys play devil's advocate and see if you think what, why someone may misinterpret this and what they may come up with from this passage of Scripture without knowing the full scope of the Bible. Right, so, so Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Some translations say have the same attitude. Um, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What do you think people might misinterpret that verse to mean? Especially in verse 7. Okay, all right, so what's the word used there? He emptied, emptied himself. So what would be the argument that, that maybe liberal scholars or liberal people would have? He gave up some of his godness. So when he came to earth, he okay, there we go. He wasn't fully God when he came to earth. He was fully man, but he gave up some of his godhood when he came to earth. Now, that term emptied does not mean anything about giving up his godhood. Actually, as a matter of fact, what does it say up there in verse 6? He was in the form of God, meaning he was God, and he was equal with God. But what's Paul's argument here? Paul's argument here is that he's trying to tell the Philippian church, you guys need to submit yourself to each other. You need to get along. You need to love one another. You need to serve one another. You need to, um, to be humble before one another. Let me give you an example. The perfect person that did that, Jesus. Jesus had every right and every status and every privilege to be in heaven and have that authority and have that status. What Jesus gave up was not his deity, but the status, the privilege, not the deity. So some liberal scholars argue that Jesus actually, quote, emptied himself of divinity while coming to earth. But it's better to understand that what Jesus actually gave up was his status and privilege that was in heaven. Now, obviously, did Jesus limit himself? Could Jesus beam places? Could he have beamed himself places? If he wanted to. But he chose to walk could he read people's minds yes could he walk on water yes you know could he have done more than he did yes the thing about jesus when he came was he was submitted to the will of the father so everything he did was what the father wanted him to do so he wasn't just some traveling magician trying to show off his powers everything had a purpose of what he was trying to do let me give you a few more verses that teach the deity of christ Colossians 1, 18 through 19, speaking of Jesus, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness. Not some of the fullness or some of the halfness or part of the godness. What does it say? 
in him all of the fullness. So that's why we can say Jesus is what? He's fully God. And we also have seen from the scriptures that he's fully man, right? Okay. And we have Colossians 2.9. This is kind of Paul repeats it. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What do you have there? What's the whole fullness of deity? Fully God. What dwells bodily? Fully man. You got both of them there. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That sounds like El Mafud. This is a really good confession of Thomas. In John chapter 20, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And remember the first time Jesus showed up, Thomas wasn't there. And he's like, if I don't see his nails and I don't see the scars, I'm not going to believe. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. So what does he call Jesus? Did Jesus correct him and say, No, don't call me God. I'm not God. I'm just kind of a resurrected guru. No, he says, My Lord and my God. Yes, don't. No, not that. Not to, I don't think. I don't think they had the full understanding. I thought they. I think they believed there was going to be a Messiah. There was going to be a deliverer. There was going to be one that would come and be a redeemer. But I don't know if they thought it would be just like one of the kings that like a judges. We, you know, God's given us Moses. God's given us Samuel. God's given us David. All throughout history, God's given us a man who was a redeemer. If they read their Old Testament closely enough, they should have realized that because a lot of the Psalms, a lot of prophecies in Isaiah do talk about Jesus not seeing corruption because in the sermons in Acts, especially Peter's sermons, he quotes, especially the Psalms, that talk about how Jesus would not see corruption, how he would rise from the dead, how he would be divine. So, yes, the theology of the Old Testament teaches it, but the Jews of Jesus' time, were they ready for that? No. Does that answer the question? You still look like no. I'm, okay. No, it's, if it's, I guess, biblically, theologically there in the Old Testament, but then they still didn't see that. Yeah. Because they were looking. Well, that's why. God. That's why. If you go back, we don't have time to do this, but if you go back and read the sermons in Acts, especially Peter's Pentecost sermon, his sermon in Acts chapter three. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 and Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13, those are to Jewish people, not to Gentiles. Those are to Jewish people. And the, and the, the bulk of their sermon is an exposition or an explanation of the Old Testament passages that pointed to Jesus to prove that He indeed was the Messiah. And the passages they quote from the Old Testament are passages that teach the deity and the resurrection and all these things they should have known about who Christ was to try to show the Jews that he indeed is the Messiah. So. Aren't there still some Jews today that believe that? Oh, yeah. Jesus wasn't oh, yeah. That's, I mean, in, in Judaism, and that's what they believe. Yeah. Unless you're a Messianic Jew or a Christian Jew, that they're still waiting for their Messiah. They don't believe Jesus was the one to come. Okay? Um, look at 1 John 5.20. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. What does John say? That's all talking about Jesus the Son, right? He is the true God. He's God. And then in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 4-5, listen to what Jesus prays to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Who's the only one that can share God's glory before the world was created? Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Okay? So that's the, that's the hypostatic union. That's the teaching. Fully God, fully man. And we probably could have looked at more scriptures that teach that. But what I want to do now is I want to show you guys some heresies that have cropped up in the early church, like in the 300s, in the, basically the 300s, what these heresies are and then how they've crept their ugly heads or reared their ugly heads in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Because Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons attack fully God, fully man. They attack the hypostatic union of Christ. But, they, but this is nothing new. These modern-day cults, they're, they're a repetition of heresies that have been around forever. So I don't necessarily... This is just for your information. This is not like a test where you have, like I'm going to come down and say, okay, guys, what's Apollinarianism? I'm not going to like ask you guys that. I'm just giving you the historical names of what these are. Um, but first one is, is Apollinarianism. And this heresy said Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind. Only a spiritual mind. This divides the hypostatic union. So he wasn't fully man. He was halfway man, but fully God. This was rejected by the Council of Alexandria in 362 and the Council of Constantinople in 381 as a heresy. Okay? Nestorianism. There's two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. Split personality, two different, not one person, two natures, two natures, two, pe- or two people inside that one body. It's kind of like, okay, when's the, when's the God part going to work and when's the human part going to work and are they going to be in tandem? So it's, it's a human person and, and a divine, two Two, um, two separate persons in Christ. Yeah, bipolar. Yeah, maybe bipolar. This was rejected at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The big one that you need to really understand, because I think this is, if there's one heresy that's really shown itself, it's Arianism, named after a guy named Arius. This denies the completeness of Jesus' Jesus' deity. What Arianism basically says, this was condemned at the Council of Nicaea at 325. This is the heresy that Jesus was created by the Father and denies the eternality of Christ. Arianism. So what's the year on that? 325, it was, it was a heresy. Does the Bible teach that Jesus was created? Does the Bible say that Jesus has always existed? Yes. Okay. Arianism comes along and says, no, Jesus is created. And then the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea, 
in 325, really the Nicene Creed came out of that. And the Nicene Creed really speaks about the deity of Christ as that early, early creed. Docetism, this is kind of a weird belief. It's more of a Gnostic belief. They deny the genuine, they go the other way. Arianism denies his deity. Docetism denies his humanity. <laughs> so Jesus only appeared to be a man. They actually taught that Jesus did not have a body. He was only God and somewhat of a ghost. As a matter of fact, they said that when he walked along the beach, he wouldn't have footprints. What does that do to the cross? If Jesus doesn't have a body and dies on the cross, then how can he bear our sins in his body? How can he rise again with the body? How can he be our representative? Okay. Yeah, the blood. I mean, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This is Gnosticism, and in Gnost- this is Greek Gnosticism. In Greek Gnosticism, basically matter is evil. Flesh is evil. And so the best thing you can do in your life, because you've inherited this cage, if you will, for your soul, you got a soul, but you got to carry around this body. And matter's bad in Gnosticism. So you're going to respond two different ways to this body that you have in Gnosticism. One way you're going to do it is you're going to go and beat yourself into submission and you're going to fast and you're going to flagellate yourself and you're going to live as a monk and you're going to try to deal with the sin of your body because I have to deal with this sin. The other way you're going to deal with it is, you know what? I got this body. It doesn't matter. All that matters is my soul. I'm going to go send my heart out, go get drunk, go have sex, go do as much stuff as I can with my body because it really doesn't matter what I do with my body because I have a soul. Did God create us with a soul? Yes. Did God create us with a soul only? Were Adam and Eve just floating around as soulless people? No. Adam and Eve had body and soul, so humans were always created to have body and soul. When Jesus came, he had body and soul if matter's evil, what does that do to Jesus in the incarnation? What does that do to Jesus dying on the cross? And what does that do to Jesus in the resurrection? Yeah, it makes, makes it all, basically nullifies it all. So those are the ancient heresies. The big one, Arianism. So let's talk about, who do I have first? I think Jehovah's Witnesses. The JWs. Let's talk about what they believe about Jesus' pre-human existence. The Watchtower, and by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the official, the, the official group is called the Watchtower Society. That's if you hear the Watchtower Bible, the Watchtower Society, that's, that's what it's called. So the Watchtower Society teaches that Jesus Christ was the first created being of Jehovah God. Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. They're modern-day Arians. What did, Arian, what did Arianism say? Jesus was created. So Jesus was the first created. Jehovah God created Jesus as a divine-like spirit at some point in ancient pre-creation time. And furthermore... In his pre-existence, Jesus was known as the Word. Now, does that sound like biblical language? They're kind of trying to co-opt that terminology. So they're going to use, in the beginning was the Word. Because he was God's spokesman. He's also identified as Michael the archangel. 
So Jesus is Michael the archangel. He's a pre-existent, or he's a created spirit sometime in eternity past. He's called the Word, and he's also called Michael the archangel. And he's a created spirit of God. The Watchtower teaches that through the agency of the pre-human Christ, Jehovah created all other things in the universe. Okay, what passages of Scripture have we looked at that teach that Jesus created? John 1.1. 1, 1. In Him all things were created. Nothing was created. Colossians, in Him all things were created. So Jehovah's Witness looks at that and says, okay, here's our way around that. Yes, Jesus created all things. But he was first created. And then God created him first so that he could, through Jesus, create everything else. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but do you understand their, their viewpoint? Okay. This agent, however, is not to be confused with being a co creator with God. So, Watchtower Society denies the deity and eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ. Thus, what can we say about, is this a dog? Let me just, let's just back up. Is the deity of Christ a dogma? Remember dogma, doctrine, preferences we talk about a lot? Is the deity of Christ a dogma? Is it something you absolutely have to believe? Yes. If you don't believe it, then you're... Either you're, you're a baby Christian, you need to be confronted with that and need to believe it, but it's a dogma. Is the full humanity and full deity of Christ a dogma? Okay, so if you don't believe dogma, what does that make you? A, a heretic, a heresy, non-Christian. And as hard as it is to say in this day and age where nobody wants to call people out, Jehovah's Witnesses are heretics, false converts, believing a false teaching, have denied dogma. And if they don't repent and believe, they will spend eternity in hell, regardless of how sincere they are, going door to door believing this. Because if you don't believe in the right Jesus, how can you be saved? Okay? Now, the Watchtower's society's position is similar to the 4th century Arian heresy, Universally rejected, we talked about earlier, by Christian churches at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Here's where the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures translates John 1.1. In the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Lowercase g, article A. He was... No, I think, I think what they meant by a... Now, Mormonism, yes, but in Jehovah's Witnesses, I think when they say a God... Here's what's happened. You have a corrupt theology, and when you come to the Bible, and the Bible disagrees with your theology, you can do one of two things. You can submit to what the Bible says and change, or you can finagle it to fit your... You can finagle it to fit your theology and, and, and corrupt the translation. That's what they've done. A God, meaning he was the first created spirit, Michael the archangel, and then through him everything else was created. So he wasn't Jehovah the God, the one true, because they don't believe in the Trinity. Remember, Jehovah is the one God. He's a God, lowercase g, subservient or submissive or, or subordinate to 
Jehovah God. The Watchtower Society also interprets, we think we talked about this a few weeks ago, Colossians 1, 15-20, where it says the firstborn, they look at that as first created. However, the firstborn, prototokos, principle in Hebrew culture, refers to privilege and superiority, not to priority in time. I think we, did we not talk about that a few weeks ago? I think, I think we did. All right, let's talk about Jesus' birth with Jehovah's Witnesses. The Watchtower Society teaches that Michael the Archangel disappeared from heaven for a while and was, and was conceived miraculously by the Virgin Mary. So if Jesus is the pre-existent Michael the Archangel, somehow he disappeared from heaven and got planted into Mary. So they will, the Jehovah's Witnesses will believe the virgin birth. It's just that the Jesus that's born is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's, it's, a, it's a created archangel. Marvelously, Jehovah transferred the life force and personality pattern of a firstborn heavenly son to the womb of Mary God's own active force, His Holy Spirit, notice lowercase, His Holy Spirit, safeguarded the development of the child in Mary's womb so that was what was born was a perfect human. They do not believe that the Holy Spirit's a person. It's an it. It's a, it's a force. All right, let's move on to Mormonism to make it even more confusing. Jesus was the spiritual, quote, firstborn son of God in the pre-existence. Quote, Every person who was ever born on earth was our spirit, brother, or sister in heaven. The first spirit born to our heavenly parents was Jesus Christ, so he is literally our elder brother. Doesn't make any sense to you. So every single one of you has pre-existed sometime before as a spirit, as a spirit, and then you were born just like Jesus was the first one that was that spirit that was created. So he's our older brother. He is, the, he is also, quote, the only begotten physical offspring of God by procreation on the earth. Quote, Jesus is the only person on earth to be born of a mortal mother and an immortal father. That is why he's called the only begotten. I think I talked about this a few weeks ago. God the Father and Jesus literally had sex and produced Jesus. I mean, Mary. Yeah, by procreation. Meaning, God and Mary had sex. And that spirit who was Jesus somehow got infused into the sperm and the egg, and that's how he was born. Well, you should be. I'm glad you are, John. <laughs> I'm glad you are. So if you want to, that's what happens when a, hum, when, a, when, a, when, a, when a male and a female zygote come together. It's some spirit baby, our spirit force comes into that. So then, how was Jesus, if Jesus was the first one? Yeah, he was. The, the rest of through birth, through procreation. Well, I don't know. How, no, it goes all the way back to Adam. I have to go back and look at what Adam, what they believe about Adam and Eve. Uh, this is hard enough for me to figure out. I don't want to. Go. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, humans were already here. Adam. Yeah. So, 
but let's just stop. Okay. Let's figure out how people get here. If they were spirits, I know it's off the subject. That's fine. But if this is. Okay, spirit people. Spirit people. You and me had a spirit before, right? Right. Then how did they become people? That spirit was in that spirit person. Like by who? The, oh, the God. Like who was the first one? Then? Elohim. God. No, God. The first. That's the. That's the. That's. That's the problem because God was an exalted man that learned how to become a God, and then when he learned how to do that, but he. Who was his wife? Mary. Mary. Jesus, but what about Adam and Eve? Who were? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to go back and I don't know. Uh, Don, I don't know. We'll have to go back and I'll have to go back and study. I don't understand how people are thinking about this. <laughs> well, that's because they're brainwashed. Well, let's all right. Let's let's say this. I, I, I said this last week, and I want to say it again. When you come across Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they will use the same terms as we do. do well, if you say in the beginning was the Word. Well, they say, oh, yeah, the word's Jesus. Do you believe the virgin birth? Yes. Do you believe Jesus was perfect? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Yes. They can say yes to almost everything that we say, but what's the meaning behind it? That's why you've got to ask those deeper questions because vocabulary matters when you're talking to cults because they use the same vocabulary we do, but they have totally different meanings. It's like Don and I talking about spaghetti. Hey, we're going to have spaghetti for dinner. In my mind, I think about the noodly stuff with, you know, prego and some, you know, some stuff that you eat with some garlic bread. And she may be thinking, you know, it's um, white sauce. White sauce. Okay. I mean, there's something Linguini totally different. Linguini with clam sauce, okay? <laughs> so we're both thinking spaghetti, but we have totally different definitions of what we're thinking about. But we're thinking we're talking the same way. So when you talk to somebody that's in a cult, you really need to get down deeper below just the surface. Do you believe God? Do you believe Jesus? You need to ask the how or what or why questions. What do you believe about, you know? And if you're really daring, you can throw the you know, Nicene Creed in front of them and say, do you affirm this? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> like you're carrying around the Nicene Creed in your, in your pocket. But, but, you know, for example, let's, let's just play this out. Um, well, Dave, you've got a bunch of Mormons that you work with, and do you, have you had conversations, or what are some of the things that they bring up, or the things you guys talk about? I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Well, but. I notice I notice that a lot. Um, the, the conversation is that when you, the terminology is exactly the same. Yeah. You know, and 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 on the surface, you, it's like, well, you you come away thinking, well, it's pretty okay because they're, they're mm-hmm. you know they affirmed everything. But, yeah. but they're they're affirming it in their own definition. Yeah. And by the time you you get farther into it and you start asking other questions, then it's well. Then they get in those cases. I found that they get defensive and they'll and they'll reach to particular rather obscure <laughs> uh, scripture that that they've kind of picked out and yeah. they'll they'll like camp on that thing. Yeah. And they, this is the well. How about this? Yeah. You know, and, and honestly, I've I've looked at those things and gotten. I don't know. All yeah. I know is that that I don't yeah. see that any place else. I right. don't see yeah. that affirmed anywhere else. Right, and that's and th- there's a couple good points there. Number one, what Dave said is you, when you first talk, you're you're on the same plane, but then when you get deeper, you, those issues start coming out. What the cults often do is they will camp out on obscure passages that prove their theology. 
but they don't line up with the totality of Scripture. And I've said this before. Are there certain passages that are hard to understand? Are there certain passages that are hard to understand and it's the only time it's spoken of and you never see it anywhere else in the Bible? It's inspired. It's true. But do we build an entire theology over something that we don't quite understand when we compare it to what the Bible teaches pretty much overall from Genesis to Revelation? It has to corroborate with what the entire Bible... And then, and then the claim is that that because the prophet, because yeah. Joseph Smith had the answer to this, yeah. the scripture that you can't answer, yeah. that that right. he, he was given the, right. the revelation. And, and, that's, and, that's, and that's where you go. If they do not believe in what we call sola scripture, if they don't believe in scripture alone as the only final authority, any group, I don't care who it is, when they start losing the battle, this is their out. Our prophet, our leader, our guru had special divine knowledge that gave him this. And so, therefore, that's just as authoritative as the Bible. And you don't have that. Poor you. We've gotten that. We've gotten that because he's the prophet, and that's why it's true. So there's a lot of fundamental issues here, guys, when it goes to what you believe about the authority of the Bible alone. That's a dogma. What you believe about the deity and humanity of Christ, that's a dogma. What you believe about Trinity... That's a dogma. Um, there's a lot of things that you just you need to go deeper in those conversations if you ever have an opportunity to do that. So, yes, Risa. But if we're so confused with you trying to explain this, how do they get all these millions of people to? These millions of people can't even begin to fathom what. Here's why, Risa, and I and don't I don't know if I'm an, I don't know if I'm. This is my opinion. Okay, so I'm not an authority on this. I don't think that when they, the missionaries go to your house, you know, they show up in their white... I don't think they teach this theology. And I can tell you why. Because when you go to the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, there's two visitor centers. There's the one that looks like the Christian one and there's the wacky one. <laughs> I'm serious. There's like a really wacky one and there's one that you walk through. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to present the family atmosphere, the morality... Here's all the things that make us look like you. They're going to sell that to people because they want to have something. Oh, you know, there's their family values. They've got good, you know, they're wholesome people. You know, I finally belonging. And they don't really teach the deep theology of what they really believe. They hide that from people. And then when you go through the training to become like a Mormon missionary, then they teach you those pet verses or whatever to try to argue against, to try to defend how you are just like everybody else. That's what I think is happening, why all these people are following it. And here's the scary statistic. If you guys want to know the scary statistic. What Protestant denomination, based upon denomination, have defected from their denomination and, and gone and converted to Mormonism in America? Southern Baptist. <laughs> yes. Which tells you a couple of things. Number one, whatever churches are going to, they're not being taught theology. Or number two, they were false converts and were easily swayed. Or number three, I don't know what number three is. It's just, it's weird. It's kind of sad. Let's, in the short time we have left, let me just kind of give you guys kind of a cool way to wrap up. Oh, sorry, Dodie. I have been around quite a few Mormons back when I was in barbershoppers. 
yes. the life they live away from Utah is a totally different life than they live in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they, they act differently when they're somewhere else. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you guys read the news today, but the Mormon church came out today and, and lowered their stance on gay marriage. Uh, they're kind of taking one step closer to that. And I will say this, that there's a lot of homosexuality hidden in Mormonism because you take two young Mormon missionary guys, take them away from girls and have them spend two years away from their family in close quarters. There's a lot of hidden homosexual stuff that happens among Mormon missionaries that they don't talk about. Um, so what you're saying is true, what they believe. Um, but don't you think everybody's going to start, you're going to start seeing that more and more, like in everything? Yeah, especially at the, especially at the, well, think about it this way. If the prophet has gotten the revelation, he can make the pronouncement. If the Pope gets the revelation, he can make the announcement. If this is not your final authority, the Bible, then no matter who you are, you can change. Guarantee you. That's the ultimate authority. That's, that's where we're heading as a culture. If you abandon this as the only authority, you can say whatever you want and cave in. Watch it. The Pope's going to do it. The Mormons are going to do it. Any, any group's going to do it because this is not their authority. Yeah, until they started being basketball players for BYU. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, repent. Yeah, stance on the scriptures. And if they don't believe that, then they have a little bit easier path to follow. Yeah, well, think about it this way, guys. If you are not regenerate, meaning what? If you're not born again, you're not saved, and you're in a religious system, you can only fake it for so long to where you're just going to live like a lost person. And when you have those rules to prop you up in community, but when you're away from that, what's motivating you to live if you're, if you're lost? The only, the only reason you're doing that when you're around people is to make yourself look good to the rest of the people being religious. Yeah, it's very fleshly. Yeah. That, that, really, that's what you notice when you spend day after day in... in Normal circumstances with people, um, you just that's you don't you don't see a real changed person. Yeah, you know what I mean. You see, you see somebody that that would be would fit it anywhere, and the, and really the language and everything the, the the world is is the same. You know what I'm saying? But but you get them on the on the you know let's talk religion plane. And they're right there, spot on, you know. And then they've got it all laid out. But, but in the day to day stuff, yeah, you really real life, yeah. I was having a conversation with a young man, um, well, right before Christmas, and he had just come back to Sterling, and he's he was selling. Um, he was going actually door to door throughout the country selling um, security systems, and a lot of his coworkers were Mormons, 
And I said, well, what? Tell me about that. And he goes, well, number one, it's easy for them because they go to door-to-door -door anyway. So for them to do door-to-door -door sales, it's not that hard. That's what he said. He goes, it's not that hard. They're already born to doing that. So they're, but he says, you could, he goes, I could not believe how cutthroat and manipulative. And he goes, I've never seen so much, um, what was the word he said? So he goes, I have never seen so much dishonesty and, and lack of integrity. It just made me sick to my stomach. And these were coming from, you know, the family values, Mormon people. So, but, but if you're lost, you can ask like a lost person, no matter what religion you say you are. And let's not just pick on Mormons. You can be Baptist, Presbyterian, non-denominational. If you're lost, come into our church. You're going to act like a lost person. And people are going to say the same thing about you out there. They're one way at church and they're different out there. So the real thing is, have you truly been born again where you have that new heart, that new life where Christ has come and saved you from the inside out and you, you truly live a life of repentance? A life of, of, of faith in him. Um, let's talk just real briefly here about prophet, priest, and king to kind of wrap up our, our teaching. In ancient Israel, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil to show that they were set apart for service. These were the three main positions in the Old Testament, and they were anointed. So, for example, we won't read all of it, but priests were anointed in Exodus chapter 40. Verses 11 through 16, the priests were anointed. What, what did the priests do? The priests sacrificed on behalf of the people. They prayed on behalf of the people. They were the, the ones that, that were there as a go-between between God and the people. And they were anointed with oil. Priests. Prophets were anointed. Elisha was anointed. And so the prophets, what, what were the prophets? The prophets were the spokespeople of God. They were the preachers. They were anointed. Also, who else was anointed? The kings. The kings were anointed. Um, David in 2 Samuel 5, 3, uh, the, the elders at Hebron anointed David. And so when you think about the three different roles in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king, there was not one person that ever fulfilled all three roles. Nobody ever fulfilled all three roles at one time. But as Jesus came on the scene as the anointed, what does the word Messiah mean? The one who's anointed. When he comes as Messiah, he takes the role of the prophet, priest, and king. So I don't know if you know what Jesus' first name, Jesus, and his last name, Christ, kind of joking there, but the name Jesus means salvation is of the Lord. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, salvation is of the Lord. Christ, Messiah, means anointed one. So Jesus' name means the one who comes, the anointed one who comes to save. So when you think about the Old Testament, what did the, what did the prophets do? The prophets, so Jesus is the ultimate prophet. As prophet, Jesus not only proclaims the word of God, but he is the living word. He's the embodiment of God's message. He's the, he's the ultimate prophet, the final prophet, the final word of God, the final anointed one coming to bring God's word. As the priest... He stands as our mediator who by his own blood made a sacrifice to grant us access to God. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. He's the one mediator. He's the anointed one who stands in the gap, who, who died for our sins as the high priest. And as the king, he's the anointed one who rules the universe as the king of kings. He is the ultimate sovereign. Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when you think about the, the way the Old Testament connects to the New Testament, 
all the functions of the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament who were anointed, prophet, priest, and king, come to fulfillment in one person, Jesus, who's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, as the one anointed by God to be the Messiah.